to Captain's Log, where sci-fi meets theology, culture, and philosophy at warp speed. This is episode 4, A Latent Hope, part 1, and we'll actually be beginning a three-month series on biblical lament. Since we're doing a three-part series, I thought it would be helpful to outline where we'll be going from the start. It's difficult to cover such a large topic in just three weeks, so I've had to be selective. Here's the breakdown. In part one, we'll ask the question, what is lament and should we engage in it, with emphasis on the Psalms and various biblical laments. In part two, we'll take a look at the, the book that bears the term, Walking Through Lamentations Together. And in part three, we'll take a look at lament, brutally honest worship and witness, with various passages and practical application. So what does a latent hope mean? Well, this means that lament is a misunderstood and unused means of hope in the life of believers, hence the title for the series. As one of my favorite authors and musicians, Michael Card, often says, whether you agree with me or not, if you dig into the scriptures, I win. In part one, we'll address the question, what is lament and should we engage in it? Let's begin with some rhetorical questions to stir our minds to think about this topic. If Jesus taught that those who are poor in spirit and those that mourn are blessed, how can we so easily dismiss spiritual poverty and mourning? If worship is limited to merely happy church songs, then how can Job fall to the ground and worship? If we aren't meant to question God or give voice to our frustration in our worship, then why does approximately one-third of the Psalms do just that? As we seek to engage the question of what lament is and whether or not we should engage in it, we're now going to take a look at biblical, church, psychological, cultural, and personal factors as we wrestle through that question. First, let's engage biblically. How can God allow unthinkable tragedy? This is a question that flies like a banner over the world, yet is tucked away in the dark corner of Christian triteness. Perhaps it's time to learn a language other than the shallow phrases we often throw around. Perhaps it's time to reach out to God in the lost language of lament, to quote Michael Card. What is this mysterious language? Does it have a unique vocabulary and syntax? Juxtaposed to the praise of plastic smiles is the life-soaked reality of worship amidst tears. However, this language is too often misunderstood and improperly defined. Lament is often regarded as complaint, grumbling, whining, or even sin. Each of these accusations against lament fails to reveal an understanding of the true nature of this language as a sincere expression of worship. Complaints don't transpose to praise, nor are they considerate of God's glory or presence. Laments, however, do possess such transpositions and considerations. Psalm 13 exemplifies this form of worship. The psalm reads, How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? Consider and answer me, O Lord, my God. Light up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. Lest my enemies say I have prevailed over him. Lest my foes rejoice because I am shaken. But I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully 
with me. The psalmist opens with the question, how long? After a period of brutal honesty in verses 1 through 4, he shifts to praise in verse 5. Throughout the lament, the psalmist is chiefly concerned with the presence of God. But if lament is not complaining or grumbling, what is it? It is worship, unfettered by facade, and its rediscovery is essential. Lament, simply defined as reaching out to God through our brokenness, is an unrealized form of worship due to scriptural neglect, church trends, psychological presuppositions, and cultural factors. Initially, any idea or notion must be analyzed in light of God's Word. Scripture guides the faith and lives of believers. However, Scripture can be misapplied or misinterpreted or even neglected in regards to lament. Imagine a weary saint huddled at the altar and at the end of his rope. As he mutters a weeping prayer, the pastor comes to offer consolation, kneels beside him, and quotes Romans 8.28. What if the troubled individual has just come to pray about a horrific crime committed against a child? While the pastor's intention may have been consolatory and Romans 8.28 is certainly a precious truth, should this circumstance be treated in a such a superficial manner? Such a treatment only scratches the surface of the precious gift that God's Word is to us. Romans 12.15, of course, says, Rejoice with those who rejoice, weep with those who weep. Unashamedly, Christians must evaluate any theological concept according to Scripture. With lament embedded in the title, Lamentations is a book in which Jeremiah reaches out to God in the purview of Jerusalem's destruction. The apex of the book is not despondent, but hopeful. Lamentations 3. Despite his brutal honesty and sorrow, Jeremiah also gives voice to his faith. But this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. We'll examine more in depth uh, the book of Lamentations in part 2. Similarly, the hymn book of God's people, Psalms, reveals openness somewhat foreign and possibly forbidden in the culture of typical American evangelicalism. A simple survey through the Psalms leads to the conclusion that hurt can be expressed as praise. In fact, such a survey would reveal that approximately a third of all the Psalms are lament Psalms. If this kind of transparent communication to God is overtly found in the Word of God, how are Christians to neglect it? Christ himself is the ultimate litmus test for lament's validity. The Christian practice of lament is actually pursuing a person until all our questioning fades into trusting. That person is Christ, quite fluent in the language of lament himself. Jesus wept, as we see in Luke 19.41 and John 11.35, agonized, as we see in Luke 22:44, prayed for relief, Luke 22:41 through 42, and questioned the Father, as he quoted Psalm 22 in Matthew 27:46. Any definition of worship must be large enough to include the gamut of Jesus' emotional acts, prayers, and cries. Therefore, our worship language must include lament language. Second, with lament foundationally established in Scripture, the church must consider its own definition and practice of worship. 
How might our churches respond to Job amidst his suffering? Michael Card has offered a hypothetical response. Quote, Today we would ask Job to leave all these negative emotions at the church door. They are not appropriate to, nor do they fit inside the narrow confines of our definition of worship. And so, likewise, those of us who have nothing else to offer but our laments find the door effectively closed in our faces. It cost Job everything to teach us this lesson. It is time we learned it. End quote. Imagine the typical worship experience in a local church. The song leader or praise team is undoubtedly up front and leading the congregation in musical exultation. The first notes ring with crisp enthusiasm, and reality soon fades into the background of praise, or at least the appearance of it. Perhaps some eyes are closed, some hands raised, and perhaps some hearts are broken. Should those in the latter category be silenced? As Walter Brueggemann has succinctly stated, the church has much praise entrusted to it. This praise, though, is not glib or giddy. Rather, it is sorrowful, yet always rejoicing, 2 Corinthians 6, verse 10. Lament provides the lyrics, language, and liberty to worship God in any conceivable circumstance. Those potential circumstances also exist outside the four walls of the church. As Job fell down, shaved his head, and worshipped, there was no stained glass and no praise chorus. There was pain. Are hospital rooms, accident scenes, or funerals precluded from worship? The church seems to have marketed and monopolized worship in such a way that pain and everyday life are marginalized. Lament is neglected, and so are those who can find no acceptable way to reach out to God in their hurt. L. Gregory Jones provides an honest examination of how churches handle those who are facing death. His introductory premise is that we are better equipped to handle funerals than to care for the dying. His conclusion is that we be, quote, people of lament and hope rather than complaint and optimism, end quote. Therein lie the two opposite sides of the ecclesiological spectrum. Lament is often scorned as complaint or displaced by a cursory optimism in the church. However, at the center of this hypothetical spectrum is the painful, honest, liberating, and worshipful process of biblical lament. The church's trend of chiding and relegating this means of worship is itself a lamentable act. Furthermore, the psychological implications of lament are noteworthy. Christians need to deal with loss, depression, anxiety, stress, disappointment, and anger in a biblical way. The human condition is fallen, prone to wonder, and apt to despair. The typical consensus on grief is that it comes in stages. This theory basically posits that once tragedy hits, we will eventually work our way through denial, anger, bargaining, depression, and finally acceptance. While this notion of stages may be helpful and even accurate in some cases, it is not the universal norm for grieving, in my opinion. The trouble is that like an overfilled file cabinet, it cannot remain closed indefinitely. Is there an easier way to deal with the pain? No. Is there a better way? Yes. Lament gives us the permission to deal with our spiritual or practical neuroses in conversation with God. Such a conversation guides us through the pain, however it may manifest itself, with an infinitely loving companion. Unfortunately, along with painful circumstances comes the temptation to either rewrite 
orthodox doctrine, or abandoned faith. The sovereignty of God, or the goodness of God, can seem mutually exclusive when facing trials. However, lament guides the relational dialogue between those who are hurt and God himself. Randall M. Christensen, M.D., testifies to the merit of lament particularly seen in the Psalms in dealing with depression. Quote, The authors in their laments in Psalm 31 and Psalm 102, for example, describe intense distress and anguish similar to the symptoms of modern clinical depression. They go on to lift up their eyes to God in the process, are able to move from, Why are you downcast, O my soul? Why so disturbed within me? To, Hope in God, for I will yet praise him, my Savior and my God. Psalm 42.11 This offers hope and comfort for those today that are depressed and provides insights to those trying to help them. End quote. Sorrow is a common thread in the tapestry of humanity that only honesty can weave together. In the wake of heartbreaking tragedy, we must guard ourselves from being too guarded. Such deception is not the language of the Bible, where prophets, kings, disciples, and even the Savior openly express the heights of their joy and the depths of their grief. This is the heart of lament, where through brokenness we reach out to God, unfettered by shame, pride, or denial. This kind of transparency frees us to laugh heartily, speak openly, and weep bitterly. The beauty is that God accepts it and honesty eventually turns tears into praise. The psychological benefits of conceding brokenness, engaging with God, and feeling the transposition to praise would be foolish to ignore. Additionally, there are possible cultural factors which contribute to downplaying this biblical practice. Two factors at the forefront of relegating lament are the notion that tears denote weakness and the overarching concept of retributive justice. First, consideration must be given to the prevailing callousness of our time. Do tears signify weakness, or are they actually the conduit of a deeper strength? The military veteran who silently suppresses his pain is no stronger than the small child who weeps at the loss of his mother. The church member who suppresses their suffering with a plastic smile is no stronger than the poverty-stricken woman who wails in longing for hope. Who, in each of these examples, is open enough to tap into grace, which is our greatest strength? Second, the concept of retributive justice still measures all of life's experiences by the old adage, God blesses the righteous and curses the wicked. But this adage is insufficient in light of Job's theme, and more importantly, in light of the gospel itself. American culture employs the Jeremiah, a sermon that explains suffering as divine payback for sin, and this frames the prevailing understanding of pain. If pain is improperly understood, then it will be improperly handled. So ironically, pseudo-strength and works righteousness serve as grievous detours from the true path of dealing with grief. Moreover, lament must be considered personally rather than merely as a theological, psychological, or cultural hypothesis. God's people must consider each of these facets of dealing with grief. However, they must also realize the impact on their own lives and the lives of all those that they impact. 
allow me to briefly engage in such a reflection. Personally, instead of a cascade reaction, grief tends to accumulate until it bursts forth in a spurt of depression. The reality of pain is present, but because of a hectic schedule, personal pride, and a church culture that lends itself to burying our true hurt, I file it away with the label, Do Not Open. I remember the irony of portraying strength and offering comfort despite my own inner turmoil during my grandmother's eulogy. Though my outward composure betrayed any evidence to the contrary, inside, a tsunami of grief was making landfall on my heart. At the time, I dismissed it by placing it in a sterile folder, filing it away and locking the cabinet of my pain. Can tsunamis really be filed away? As I lose loved ones, face insecurities, endure wrongs from others, and wrestle with my own weaknesses, I find ways to hide the hurt. However, despite my efforts to conceal, it accumulates like a thundercloud until it's all unleashed. Inevitably, some catalyst, a song, a sermon, a conversation, or a memory, will strike the chord of release, and the facade of my composure results in an emotional downpour. Lament would have granted me an opportunity to know the nearness of God that only tears can afford. Perhaps my own transparency will serve as a catalyst for your own introspection. As we conclude, those who are hurting must flee to the scriptures because powerful prayers are available. Flee to the Savior because this man of sorrows is acquainted with grief and able to empathize in the truest sense of the word. Flee to the Father because in him is found loving kindness beyond belief. But do not flee from hurt because doing so prevents the painful and healing journey of lament. Overall, the outcome of lament is not an answer, but a better question. Psalm 13 hinted at it. While we begin by asking why, lament guides us to asking where. Where is God in this? He is there. He is tender. So instead of throwing around cliches, use the language of lament and let your why become where. In the final analysis, lament is scripturally undergirded, ecclesiologically mischaracterized, psychologically underestimated, and culturally relegated. Meditate on God's Word, evaluate the practices of the church, consider the mental benefits, and cast aside the cultural stigmas. This biblical practice should be embraced personally and corporately. Easy answers, superficial advice, predetermined stages, and formulas will not be forthcoming. However, the presence and grace of God will abound. Life, culture, and even the local church might protest the brutal honesty required to reach out to God. But lament can endure such a protest and faithfully persist that His presence and grace are enough to see us through the deepest possible pain. Ultimately, the issue is settled in Christ because in Him we find the incarnation and resolution of all our tears. Well, we've reached that part in the episode where we want to do a shout-out, and often I'll do a Twitter poll and get your feedback on just a question that's a little bit more lighthearted. And this time on Twitter, I posted the question, which captain do you think would make the best president? Vote, share, and comment. And in this question, Picard came in at 73%, Kirk at 13%, Janeway at 8%, and Cisco at 6%. 
And in these controversial times in which we live, I would recommend you go back and listen to episode two of Captain's Log, where we address everyone's favorite pastime, politics. I'd like to thank you for taking the time to listen. Lament is a topic that I'm personally passionate about. I enjoy reading and studying and have done quite a bit of research along those lines. I enjoy sharing about it as well and hope that you found this episode helpful. In our next episode, we'll take a look at the book of Lamentations, the book that bears the name, and we'll examine this continuing theme of how we can engage with God even in the midst of great suffering, even in the midst of great sorrow. I'd also like to encourage you to engage with me at calvinistpicard.com. There you can read the Captain's blog. You can also take a look at past episodes of the Captain's log and can leave feedback on the first contact page. I'd really enjoy uh, the opportunity to hear from you, what you think about the show, uh, whether you're enjoying it, whether you have suggestions. All feedback is welcome. I'd really like to incorporate your ideas and your feedback and make the show better over time. Until next time, keep in mind that not even Twitter debates can separate us from the love of God. Thanks for listening.